This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Hey guys, welcome to the Hero Academy podcast, the place where you can celebrate and highlight our frontline heroes, people such as nurses, firemen, EMS, police officers, and military are all heroes without capes. I don't care about politics, only positivity and purpose. I only care about those that have chosen to serve our society. I believe in collaboration over competition. Here, you'll learn the secrets and strategies that let ordinary people become extraordinary inside of their purpose. Sometimes we'll throw in some simple side hustles that everyday regular people are doing, things that you could do to make some extra money, especially if you're starting to think about retirement and what's next. Inside this podcast each week, you'll learn from people like you that were working full time, but still found the time to create a course, grow a big team, create a coaching program, a large audience, or a profitable side hustle. The steps they took, their backstories, and how they overcame their burnout that they were facing. The perfect blend of mindset and techniques. Carpe diem. Now let's get your dream lit for your freedom. I'm your host and coach, Super Dave. Let's go. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of the Hero Academy. I have Kevin Denny. And Kevin, if you could just uh, introduce yourself to the audience. I see you got some stars on the Colin there, you chief? I am. I'm a chief in a uh, agency in the middle of uh, Nebraska, uh, Grand Island. And uh, I've been here for a year. Before that, I spent about 30 years in Texas law enforcement. Okay. All right. That's a long, long time. Long career. How many years total? Uh, it was uh, 31 this past October. So, uh, yeah, you know, and as you know, it goes by so quickly. Yeah, man. I uh, I started at 22 years old. How old were you when you started? Uh, 24. I was 24. And I'm 55 now. And uh, yeah, you know, I jumped into an agency in North Texas, uh, Irving, and uh, spent 24 years there. Did everything I really wanted to do. And, I, you know, as you as you go into your career, you're thinking, OK, you're thinking, what do I want to do? I want to do federal and I want to do local. You know, what is it? And I initially wanted to do federal. And uh but I thought I need to get my feet wet in in local law enforcement. Check it out, you know. And and uh, so uh, I went to Texas A and M, and then uh, I worked on my master's in criminal justice after that for about a year. And then um, in '92, got hired with the Irving Police Department. And I thought, well, I'll stay here a few years, and you know, three years turned to six years, and I got to go places and do things. You know, I was in narcotics and and on the SWAT team and stuff, and. I was having so much fun doing that. There's just no way I wanted to go federal after that. What was your favorite unit? Was it was it narco? I would say so. Uh, I I was only there for just under three years, and I promoted in '99 out of narcotics. Uh, and so, if I had not have promoted at that time, I probably would still have been there for a much longer time. I probably would have spent most of my career in narcotics. I really enjoyed that. And uh, but you know, I. Uh, as, you know, you, you you think, oh, I'm gonna go take a sergeant's test and see how it goes, and and then they promote people that year, you know, and you're like, oh man, okay, and I what, I wasn't doing myself any favors because I really I really enjoyed narcotics, but that it probably was the best thing that happened to me that was not really intentional. It got me 
kind of going on the promotional route. And, uh, but I stayed a sergeant for most of my time, all my time in Irving the rest of the time. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, I love narcotics. Narcotics was a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I tell people that that was a dream of mine to get promoted to detective into narcotics. And, uh, when I got the phone call, they said, congratulations, you're getting promoted, but you're going to special victims. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute that's not what i was thinking about that's doing. not what i was thinking right 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 so uh I, I did that for almost three years and then i uh was able to make my exit and go to uh you know robberies assaults larceny, yep. things like that so yeah that's my that's my story um a lot of people say that they love sergeant the rank of sergeant because you're still in the field but you're uh you know you're not necessarily handling the calls Mm hmm. You and I, I would definitely agree. I would say that if you're going to be a supervisor in a police department, the sergeant's the best place because we all get in because we want to help people. We want to make a difference, you know, and, and, and when you get into local policing, it's nitty gritty. You know, you like eyeballs, eyeballs to eyeballs on the street. And so when you're a sergeant, you get to have a, a influence over a, a group of officers and mentor and, and develop them. But you're still on the street. And and uh, in Irving, it was it was the same way. I know your agency is gigantic. Um, Irving was, uh, I think, just under 400 officers or so, and uh, it was big enough to where you can That's move pretty around big. and stuff. Yeah, it's decent size. And uh, um, and as a sergeant, um, you know, we had a our standalone SWAT team, so I was a sergeant on the SWAT team for uh, almost five years. And and then uh, you know, anytime in patrol, it's just it's great. Sergeants, you're right there. You're with the troops. Uh, you're doing some of the job. Um, so I, yeah, Sergeant was great. Do you have any favorite cases from narco or, uh, favorite calls that you went to as a Sergeant? Well, I would say as a Sergeant, there's, you know, since most of my time was as a Sergeant, uh, there were some things that came up, you know, we all have a crazy first couple of years when we get into policing. Cause you know, we're new and we're running around like, you know, a herd of cats and everything. And, and so everything's just crazy. Um, I would say, uh, you know, we, I would say there's a couple different stories. One is early in my career, uh, I was with a buddy that we went to the academy with and, and uh, uh, we were running a lot of people in patrol one night because we were experimenting with a 10 hour shift. So there's a lot of overlap. And so we were, there was just everybody on the streets and we were running into each other left and right. And so we were working a two man unit and uh, we got a, we got information that this uh these gang guys had stolen a car and they were going to come to this particular apartment complex. And, uh, and that's where they were going to come in. Cause one of them lived there. And so we, we, you know, of course we only got like a year and a half on. So we think we're big time and, and we're across the street waiting for them to show up. And sure enough, they show up and we get in behind them and they make us like nobody's business. So we try to, I, I, uh, decide cause we're in a car with no lights. Uh, and we can't get on the radio cause there's too many people out there. So I move ahead of them and kind of angle in. They stop and my buddy jumps out. I jump out. I hear a gunshot. And uh, long story short, um, I come around to the to the far side of the vehicle and uh, we get everybody out. But it turns out that my buddy had uh, when he went to go reach for the doorknob, the door, the door latch, he'd also had his finger on the trigger. <laughs> and you, you don't expect something like that. And the, so the bullet went past the driver's ear into the headrest and went down between uh, the guy's legs in the back seat. And uh, 
you know, he, my, my partner and the driver had an angel on their shoulder at that time. Cause um, it, it really, it could have been a lot worse than it was, but that was one of those moments where you're like, okay, this is, this is serious business, this policing thing. And, you know, maybe we'll do something a little bit different next time. But uh, that was something crazy early on. And, you know, uh, in narcotics, I always like to, to draw the, 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 the difference between narcotics and SWAT is that when you're in narcotics, you pretty much don't do anything with a plan, right? Because the plans always immediately go off the rails. So you're yeah, like, they I'm say, "Hey, meet me in this parking lot," and then they say, yeah. "Oh, I'm running a little late. Can you meet me over here?" Yeah, and then and then you so you know what's the guy's name? Well, his name's Joe, and he shows up in this car, you know, and whatever. And then you got the SWAT team involved, and I always make fun of them. But we always did narcotics because they they do everything with a plan, right? I mean, they're going to go eat buffet pizza with a plan. And uh, so we would always, you know, mess with them, but they would want, okay, what's this guy? Let's give all the details. Okay. Well, the guy shows up. He's always, he's always shown up in this car. He's always shown up alone. We've always done the deal in my car and he walks back to his car. He always parks. And of course, you know, when you're going to bust them, they always show up, they park in the fire lane, they bring their kids, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. So uh, the plans go off the rails pretty quick. <laughs> now, how many people are in your agency now? How is it a smaller agency? It's smaller than Irving. Um, it is uh, authorized 89 sworn. We're about now we're about five or six down. We were 20, about 20 down in January when I when I first got here. Uh, we did a lot of hiring, a lot of good, good hires. But as you know, it takes, you know, a year to get somebody from from hired to on their own. And so uh, we've got about five or six more spots to fill. We should get those filled by the end of this year. And then by this time next year, we'll have everybody functionally as a real cop, you know, on the streets. When you left, before you went to Nebraska, what was your highest rank? Well, I spent 24 years in Irving and that was all as a sergeant. So uh, I left Irving as a sergeant and uh, I started looking around at other things that were out there and I, I, then jumped from a sergeant to a police chief position in a small school district. So we had um, about 12 sworn, 18 total in that department. So it was, it was a big change for me because in a big agency, you're you're not used to having to deal with purchasing cameras and getting vehicles ready. I mean, you just jump in the car and go, right? right. And, and so in a small, and it's, and it's in a school district, which was different as well. And so uh, I spent four years doing that as a police chief and started to learn a little bit about what that means. And then uh, I jumped out of uh, this, the uh, school district police chief back to municipal police chief. And that was a small department that was 10. And uh, that was just North of Austin, kind of where I grew up about 40 miles North of Austin. And uh, during that time, I thought, well, when I, when I, when I went to the school district, I thought, man, now I'm a police chief. That's great. But they can fire me at any moment. You know, if any, any, anything bad happens, I better have a plan B. And the plan B was to, to continue my education. So I, I got my criminal justice master's and then uh, I went back and got my uh, public administration master's. And then uh, during the time I was in the municipality in uh, just north of Austin, I uh, finished all the classwork for my Ph.D. in criminal justice. And so I'm working on the dissertation now up here in Nebraska. What do you what is your uh, thesis? What's what's the topic? The topic, since I was since I spent time in the school district and I was an SRO sergeant for a few years, uh, that fascinates me 
in what we think is safety and security in a school district, a school, a school resource officer model versus what the staff thinks. Right. Because we all know that there's a little bit of difference there. Yeah. They don't so, want you to carry a weapon in the schools. <laughs> yeah. They, <laughs> it was up to them. You know, yeah. They, they want somebody that comes in high fives, but we want somebody that we know is switched on that can take care of business. If you have, God forbid, an active shooter show up or, you know, anything like that, right. mad parents, whatever. And so uh, the dissertation is going to be um, a survey and analysis based on what the perceptions of safety and security are with regard to school staff and the, and the SRO model uh, and where those gaps are, you know, and, and where we can close the gaps in training and policy. I know for a while there was uh, a push for teachers to be armed. Um, I actually agree. You know, I stay away from politics, but I actually agree with the motto that it takes a good guy with a gun to stop a bad guy with a gun. I actually agree with, I don't believe that everyone should be armed. Yeah. <laughs> by, by no means do I think that everyone should be armed, but I, I feel certain people in, in certain positions, it makes sense. Like for pilots, mm -hmm. for uh, anyone that's in charge of a group of people where an active shooter could potentially present, um, you know, some school bus drivers, you know, certain situations. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And in Texas, we had the Guardian and we had the Marshall program. And uh, I did, I worked with some teachers and, and administrators on that, um, on staffing. So I agree with you that you got to be switched on. So like uh, my wife's a teacher and I would never want to be a teacher, right? <laughs> and she would never want to be a cop. And so, you know, um, and just like firefighters, you know, usually when you're coming up, um, going through high school and maybe college or whatever, you're coming out of the army or military, you know, you don't, you, you don't think of doing firefighting and policing. You either think of firefighting or policing. Right. And so, uh, you know, the, the, they don't really overlap a whole lot. And so you're right. I think you got to find people that are switched on, uh, in a security way for teachers and administrators. Because you can't just say, okay, anybody can carry in a school and stuff because then you'd have who knows what you'd have going on. But you'd have some very irresponsible situations. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, the problem is if if you're in a rural school and helps a long way off and as, as far as county or state or local uh, law enforcement, then if you don't have a weapon to counteract the weapon that's presented to you, then you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, it's uh it's one of the things that it's so unfortunate, our mental health crisis right now. Um, it, there's no easy answers to it, mm -hmm. you know, but I think if you put enough brains together, you can come up with some viable solutions. I had a political science teacher who one time gave us a thought exercise in how could we eliminate all prisons. It was a wild idea. But it was a thought exercise, which was really mm -hmm. good. He said, how could we eliminate all prisons in the next five to 10 years? And then people started coming up with some suggestions. And it's like, well, you put them all on an island, mm -hmm. the Mankel monitors. And then if you start, <laughs> if you really think about any problem, there's solutions there. Oh, yeah. Yep. Well, and then, of course, you run across all the, the political issues here. You know, uh, lock them up is so popular because... You know, that like, like a hard stance on crime. And of course, you look at the 80s, 90s, and that's pretty much what we did. But um, I think for the most part, and this is kind of contrary to probably most most policing people, but 
you know, you're going to have a extremely small percentage of people that do not need to be in the general population of, of, of society. Right. I mean, they're just, they are predators or they are people that are going to hurt people no matter what. Yes. And those, those people need to be put away. Um, and you, you dealt with them in child crimes and, and all that. Um, but I would say for the other, whatever it is, probably 80% of the people that are incarcerated, it sure would be nice to find something that's more cost effective. That's actually more productive. That gives them some ability to have resilience and, and incorporate back into society. I don't know why so many administrations and so many places around the country got rid of the highway workers in the orange <laughs> jumpsuits. Like those programs yeah. made like it doesn't make sense for uh, it doesn't make sense for cheap labor. I know we're going on we're going on the prison topic. It doesn't make sense for people to be in, you know, producing things for corporation and, you know, it's basically really cheap labor, but it does make sense for something where it affects the general public good, mm-hmm. where they're actually giving back to society. So our low level uh, DWEs, low level addicts who mm-hmm. just keep getting in trouble, they would be perfect for those programs. And I don't mm-hmm. know why, I don't know why the public has gone away from those programs. I, You know, um, I think because it doesn't look like you're being tough on crime. The problem is, you know, the more people we've been locking up over the years, uh, somebody knows somebody that that is in jail, in prison, probation, whatever. And, um, and I, I think it's going to take, People touching people there, you know, that I actually know this person and, and this person was a they were a great cousin, for example, you know, but they got they got in the wrong side of, of the law. And but now they're back out and they're, they're trying, you know, but so the, it, it I think just like in policing, it takes that breakdown of the evil criminal in the alleyway, you know, the boogeyman type of thing. And it takes more of us realizing and humanizing. Uh, and I hate to draw the comparison in this between cops and criminals. But, you know, people look at, you know, people in blue, people in brown um, that are uh, doing law enforcement and they they stereotype us in a, in a general way. And I think it, we've been working to break down that and humanize that. And I think the criminals the same way. Unfortunately, if, if the public would realize, OK, pretty much everybody has a, an alcohol, an alcoholic in their family, maybe a drug addict, uh, maybe somebody who's just committed a crime for whatever reason. Um and you humanize it and go, what can we do? Are they a truly a bad person? Okay, let's, they are, then all right, they probably need behind be behind bars. If right. they're not, and they just went astray because we all make mistakes, then let's reincorporate them uh, intentionally. And then if they've done their time or they've done their penance, then let's reincorporate them back into society. And uh, that's not the most popular view sometimes, but um if we're really treating each other as human beings and we're, we, we believe in forgiveness, then when, when do we truly forgive? Right. Yeah. Uh, Ravi Navikant. Um, he he said a quote that uh, everyone could be rich in a matter of five years. If we taught everyone basic software instruction, you know, basic computer programming so that, AI is just taking over everything. We have robots doing everything. So the only thing that's left for humans to do is creative task, 
you know, create it, create, create, create and entertain. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know what is the holdup with giving people true skills and real skill. Like you said, if they're not a, a bad person, then let's give them some real skills, especially mm-hmm. if it doesn't cost too much. If the cost to society is not too much, you know, how can we, how can we turn this around? And I think if you, if you go down that thought, that, you know, that, that thought process, I think you can come up with some really creative ideas. I think you can. I think that, um, you know, of course, over the years and decades and centuries and stuff, we've, we've found uh, reasons to um, keep the power structures with a status quo, right? And so whether it has to do with race or religion or whatever you want to point to, um, those are just reasons to keep the power structure in 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 the, those that are in the power structure, right? And in anywhere you go, it doesn't matter whether it's city council, it doesn't matter whether it's um, you know national politics or anything like that. I think I think what you have is a the inertia of human nature to uh, get and and have power and try not to let that power go if you can help it. Right? I mean that's that's kind of what it boils down to. I think that some of the some of that power structure and that um, would be would be whittled away if we truly went for more of that egalitarian system like like you're talking about. I um I love speaking to people who are educated in criminal justice and have decades and decades of experience. It's just it makes for the best conversations. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've spoken to a few chiefs and. What I think what a lot of the cops don't realize is that you're actually a human being and you're mm-hmm. like, you, you know, you can carry on a conversation. I think the fear comes in like, oh, my God, this guy could ruin my career <laughs> <laughs> if I piss him off, you know, but like I always say we have some um, we have some really, really good bosses in our department right now who are uh, for the members and they're they're for the most part, doing the right thing by them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think like you were saying, humanizing, I, I, I love speaking to all different ranks, right? I love speaking to POs. I love speaking to, uh, sergeants, chiefs, uh, firemen, nurses, military. I love speaking. I just love having these conversations because, uh, you just never know what someone's experience can teach you, you know? And, I think you would make an excellent professor. You could go that route. You, you could go that route. I know you said teaching yeah. is not something, but you could go that route as an adjunct if you decided. Uh, do you know what you're going to do next? Because you'll still be relatively, you'll still have a, a good 20 working years um, once you do hang up the uh, the stars. Yeah, the you know the plan going forward, at least my personal plan. Now, my plan has always run a little different than God's plan. And so I've a few years ago, I've always, I just finally go, you know what, I'm going to make the, I'm going to, I'm going to do the best I can education, family, you know, punch it, everything that, you know, best punch, best foot forward, all of that. Um, but I'm not going to be so bound up if I don't, if it doesn't go the way I think it should go. And so, uh, and, and, and hence I'm here in Nebraska, which I never would have dreamed of. Um, but it's it's fantastic. I will say the department's fantastic. So I say that with the caveat um, that 
the education is always it is a plan B right now, but eventually, um, when um, you know the police care career runs runs its course, I, I would like to teach. Um, you know, in a college university level, I'm going to teach a class next uh, next semester. I'm getting uh, my the PhD through uh, Tarleton State, which is in the A&M system, and back in Texas, and so I'll be teaching a class uh, next semester. Uh, in that. So I'm kind of getting my feet wet on, on teaching classes and stuff. And how it only goes, makes, but, it only makes yeah. sense. If you become Dr. Denny, I mean, <laughs> how do you, how do you not share some of that knowledge? Well, and uh, yeah, I, I, all I want, I just want my wife to call me that. That's all. That's all. I, I mean, that's all. <laughs> I'm for. Um, but uh, yeah, I would, I, I can remember back, when I was in college and uh, then when I went, uh, went not so much to A&M, but then to Sam Houston state and I was working on my master's, the best instructors that I had were the ones, one in particular uh, worked a full career in Chicago PD, you know, and, and this is fascinating to listen to because you have this depth of experience and, and moderation that goes um, that, that kind of tempers the academic idealism, I think. And I, I think, for those of us going into into the practical world, you know, corrections, law enforcement, all of that, probation, parole, uh, if you're going through and you're listening to a structure like that, um, I think you're more ready. You're more prepared for for the real world. You get more that this is what it's really like. This is the academic stuff. We got to teach theory. We got to do this. But, you know, it, it makes it more um, more applicable, I think. And, and those those are the great professors. I love listening to them and their stories and, and how it applies to academics. I had a professor who had his Juris Doctorate. I didn't even know what a JD was. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was prior NYPD. I looked up to him so much because uh, he just had, su- like you said, such depth of knowledge. Um, he was just a great instructor. And like I really leaned forward and leaned in uh, as a 20-year-old young man who had, you know, stars in his eyes, like, this is what I want to do. Um, I just remember sitting there listening to and hanging on every word that he said, mm-hmm. just really enjoying being in his class. I wish I could remember his name, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I just remember that he had his Juris Doctorate and, and he had the years and years of experience, which, um, you know, it's priceless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's sorely sorely needed now, especially in criminal justice, in um, you know your college academics field and stuff, because there's there's always that balance between um, you know your 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 I guess career academics um, and your practitioners turned academics and and what that looks like, and um, because I I don't want to do research, I don't really want to publish anything. But that's exactly you're right about that. Getting back, if I do get back into a classroom setting um, after this, that's what it would be mainly for is just to have that fun interaction with new students coming through and 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 seeing how they're going to help shape 21st century policing and and what that looks like and 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 to make it better than than it was when when I was there, you know. Yeah. Do you have a um, any advice for people that have over 20 years on and they're uh starting to feel like it's almost time to hang it up. Mm. Well, uh, I guess the transition, I guess my, the transition. 
Yeah, I guess I guess my advice would be uh, kind of what I actually what I actually went through myself. You know, you always go through that after about 20 years. And in Irving, you could you could retire after 20 years. You know, you get your pension at 20, which was probably half of your salary. And so that's decent. Um, so the, the question becomes, do I like doing what I'm doing here or am I just staying here for the money to get, you know, the 30, 32 years in? And I would say um, if you got gas in the tank and and you know, you're getting in that 20, 22 year time period, you have to be intentional about what you do. You have to, you have to reinvent yourself or be cognizant that um, not, don't just sit around and, and waste time. Right. If, if you've gotten that far, most of us have gotten into policing because of wanting to make a difference and leave a legacy. Well, you don't want to get to 30, 32 years and look back and go, yeah, the last 10 years, I just coasted. I didn't do anything. I, I would not want to do that. And, and that's where I came to my, my point at 20, 22, 23 years with Irving, I went back and got my master's in CJ because I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm not spinning my wheels anywhere I'm at. If I feel like I'm just kind of coasting, I, I need to shake it up. And that, I think that takes a lot of uh, inner searching and it takes a lot of uh, maturity because that's a big step. When I left Irving and I went to that school district, that was the hardest career choice I've ever done because Irving's my safety blanket. Uh, it's my pacifier. You know, it was great because uh, it, it's my family, still my family to some degree. But I, my as opposed to staying there where I would have kind of flatlined a little bit on most of most of my um, uh, experiences and, and challenges, uh, man, I went like a spaceship, you know, into orbit with how much of how hard a work it was, how much challenging it was um, to go to the school district and and learn all the different things with a different agency and then come here. I would just say, to, hopefully to answer your question that, that we should challenge ourselves because you, you've only got one time coming around and you don't want to look back and tell your kids and your grandkids that, you know, you're not really proud of the last few years or last 20 years or whatever. You just, you're just doing it to get a paycheck because no matter what you do, the money's going to be there. I think, I, I think you just need to intentionally shake things up. And if you're not going to do it in policing, if you if you don't have a gas in the tank for that, and you want to do something different, and then go pursue your passion, you know. And I, I, I am as excited now as I ever was when I first got in. You know, I I love the job. You know why, how it is. You, why? Where does that passion come from? You know, again, you you transfer um, you transfer your motivation in the in the different ways, and you look at what what impact you're having. And so, uh, you know, when when I went from patrol to FTO. You know, you feel like, oh, well, I'm, I'm teaching somebody else how to do the things I've just learned how to do. And then you go to CID and you hear about, oh, these CID slugs, you know, they're not doing anything. Well, you get there and you find out. No, it's really what you make of it. Right. CID and criminal investigation, criminal investigation division. So, yeah, we had, uh, you know, all the different investigators in one one area. And, you know, so I guess the long thing is you can be a slug no matter where you go or you can be stand out and, and push it and, and grow and ask questions and learn. And uh, so that's where I, I think as a chief now, I'm the motivation that I have is to come into a police department, this one in particular, and help establish leadership, collaborate, listen to whatever the community, what the officers are saying, um, kind of get that collaborative vision of where we, where we need to be going. And then, uh, make it happen, you know, and it's always a process. We're, you know, building staffing. Um, when we're building back 
how do we want to build back? You know, we don't want to build back the same way we were five or six years ago. What's the what's the new build back look like? You know, what positions do we need to, to orient ourselves better with the community, with their expectations? So that's where my motivation and, and fun is happening right now. So just shifting gears, as a chief, you have the ability to affect training, like you just mentioned, and and like how officers are going to go out there. So do you have any kind of uh, jujitsu mandate or and and then not just the physical, the mental? Is there what kind of support do your guys have if they want to find help? Uh, for some kind of, you know, traumatic, I'm part of the peer team. So mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like, have you implemented any of those things? We've, uh, so we've implemented a few things and we've revised a few things. The policy revision has incorporated more CIT and peer support. And so we revised that to, to you know, as far as uh, the newest standards that we can find and, and what that uh, looks C- like. CIT? Uh, critical incident training. Oh, okay. Because every, so, every, 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 uh, department, everybody's different. different. They got their all, they all got their own acronyms, critical yep. incident screening. Okay. Crit- yep. Critical incident. And then peer support group. Uh, we just had, uh, established a spousal support group, uh, and that's starting to grow organically. Uh, so just literally two weeks ago, we had the first meeting and we do that in conjunction with our, our chaplain corps. They were helping to get it started. It's going to be eventually a self-led group of spouses. Um, but I think that's that has a lot of support, too, because you talk about your work family, but that's only half the equation. Then you have yes. your real family yes. and and you got to complete that circle, I think, because I can say that, uh, you know, the dark underbelly of policing is uh, not those officers necessarily that were killed in the line of duty. You know, you get into policing and, and you know that's going to happen. And it happened to me in Irving uh, during my time. We had three officers killed in the line of duty. Um, but during that time. Uh, we had at least 11 officers that took their own lives. And that's just, a, you know, and, and you're a big agency. I mean, you, I talked to some somebody in a stairwell one day and then two days later, they, you know, you find out they took their life. And you're like, you know, what what happened? What could I have done? I didn't realize they were in such pain and and all of that, that that, that was an option. And um, so my goal as a police chief is not to have that happen in this department. And so the spousal support group, I think, is a big component of that because it it brings in the spouses of the officers and and where we can they can feel like they're in a, in, a, in a safe space. I'm there for about 10 or 15 minutes to kind of talk about the department, where we're at, where we're going, discussing the issues that have happened, answer any questions that they may have. And then I leave. I exit stage left and then they run their group. And um, and I think that provides them with a little bit of a network and what's going on and things that because we don't we don't bring a lot of stuff home and you know i i think that's 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 that will really help out you know as far as as far as being able to get help yeah i think i think if if they know i can call somebody and get help outside the normal chain of command and 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 it helps if they see pattern changes or things like that going on then the molehills don't become mountains and 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 that's really that's my goal is to do anything and everything i can as a police chief, not to ever have something like that happen in, in this department. Yeah, I know um, Los Angeles, they just lost two a very close succession. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know their department's hurting right now. Um, it, it really is a shame. I, I lost three co-workers in my time. Uh, one was one of my sergeants who became a lieutenant. 
he seemed to have everything. He was an attorney, uh, beautiful young daughters, you know, and uh, you just never know what's going through someone's um, someone's mind. I know there was another sergeant that I knew very well. I had no idea that he had a gambling problem and I had no idea that he was in pain. If you talk to him, he seemed like he had the uh, world by, by the conies, you know, mm-hmm. um, same thing with that, that Lieutenant. Um, oh, I, there was another young guy that I used to work with fit, athletic, good looking guy. Um, apparently he was out injured and drinking, broke up with his girlfriend next thing I know, I hear that he killed himself. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my God. I, I just yeah. and you and 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 you can't help but thinking, you know, what what could we have done if we just known? And um, you know, why did why did things get to this point where that's considered an option? And it's um yeah, it, everyone of course the, the, the line of duty deaths, you know, impacted me uh, during my career, but but that is not something I expected as far as the the suicide and the mental health issues and stuff. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, we are doing everything. I'm going to do everything I can't hear um, to, uh, to not let that happen. That means policies. That means whatever we can do uh, inside and outside the chain of command to, uh, to identify it and, you know, stop headed off before it gets to a crisis point. In your 30 year career, um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but have you ever sought out, any help for those incidences that you were involved in? Um, you know, not, not so much for the incidences. And I, and I can say, honestly, I probably should have, because that's like, there's a compounding effect with that and you, you don't realize it. So you're, you know, uh, well, our generation, been, our generation, it's, it was a different thing. You know, it's just yeah. like, you know, you handled it, you went out drinking, whatever. I, I'm not a big drinker. Mm-hmm. You know, our generation, it was that's not a very common thing. And that's why I bring it up now, because I tell everyone, like, if you're involved in something or if you need to talk to someone, uh, get it off of your chest. You know, Mm -hmm. I learned from speaking to uh, sexual assault victims, very young ones, that the more they talked about the incident, the the better they felt, you know. And um, it's the same thing in policing. The more you yeah. talk about something, the more you hold it in, the heavier it be- it becomes. But the more you talk about any situation, the lighter it becomes because you get clear on your thoughts about it. Yeah, no, I agree, and and that's something I'm actually considering in the in the near term is to do that because, um, you know, over a course of a career, you don't realize what you're burying, and that and when it comes back and right. and how you deal with it and stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think in policing, we we have that compounding effect because you're right. Um, back in 90s, early 2000s, um, you'd go out on a just a terrible call and and then you're right back to the next call. There, There's no debriefing or anything like that. Yeah. And and that's something we do now. Um, we had a, a double murder suicide um, earlier this year here and officers responded to it. It was pretty traumatic for them and and dispatch, you know, and, and the fire department. So we. We got all of them together uh, about a, two weeks later and did a kind of just a, a therapeutic debrief, I guess, just to kind of talk about it. And uh, and that was real helpful, I think, for them. The uh, chaplain at the peer support training that I was recently at just last month, 
he said, uh, you know, people don't think about all the secondary trauma that you're exposed to, the amounts of trauma that we're exposed to over a career. Um, and, and one really good piece of advice that he said was, if you don't have to look at a scene, if you don't have to actually get those images into your mind, he's like, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. I, I was at a uh, fatal just at the beginning of uh, October. Uh, the family showed up, Hispanic family, 20 members on the side of the road, like every member of the family, the kids, mm -hmm. every member of the family was there. Uh, they wanted to go see their brother. Mm -hmm. and he had been cut open uh, by he was a pedestrian. And he was hit by a uh, by a big truck, <laughs> mm. a complete accident. You know, I don't, I can't say whose fault it was. It was a complete accident. It was dark out. It was raining, and he had been um, eviscerated. Mm -hmm. And he's laying on the sidewalk, and we had the road shut off pretty far down. But I was afraid that the family was going to go rushing in, so I told, I directed the officers to stand by with the family because. It was a pretty good sized group there and they were all very upset and they didn't understand why the driver wasn't being arrested and they didn't understand mm. um, why they couldn't walk down and see him, you know, one last time. And like, you're going to have to go to the ME's office because now is not the time. And, mm. and, and I was like, quite frankly, you don't want to see him. You don't want to see him right now. You know, I didn't want to describe it, but you know what I yeah, mean? I agree with that. I think, um, I'm, I've never been into the the blood and guts stuff, and of course, you know, I've seen plenty, but uh, I I don't go looking for it. You know, right. <laughs> if if I don't have to see something, I don't see it, yeah. and uh, that may have helped me a little bit throughout the years. I just don't, you know, if I, if, if it's not in my in my lane, then I'm not going to go looking for it necessarily, or out of curiosity or whatever. Yeah, I've been on a few scenes where uh, it was a motorcycle fatal. Mm -hmm. uh, under a truck and the person was covered and i said okay i don't have to see this i'm like i have no desire to actually go see it yeah. uh, i did make the mistake of walking into the woods where there was a skeleton found mm -hmm. and the guy was kind of decomposed and we were waiting on homicide and there were already cops kind of in there so i kind of like i was just the curiosity got the better of me it was someone that was homeless that had um, expired in the woods and there was no signs of any kind of foul play, mm -hmm. but um, the curiosity factor got me <laughs> and, uh, and I did walk into those woods to see that one. But for the most part, I tried to stay out of any scene that I didn't have to be a part of. Yeah. You know, it, it gets seared into your brain and, and, uh, and then just life, you know, I mean, not so much, maybe as a cop, maybe not as a cop, you know, but just as a person in a career, uh, you know, I've had a divorce in, in, uh, 2004 and going through that and, uh, with, with custody issues and how all that looks. And that was, that's real stressful as well. Brutal. Um, it's brutal. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, and, um, I'm just, again, I've been a really blessed a uh, fortunate person because went got get through that and, and uh, met somebody else. And, and that probably saved me in more ways than one um, in my career and in life in general, I think. And now I've got never would have never would imagine it in 2004, but now I've got four beautiful girls. I'm married. We're 
everything is going really good. And um, I think I'm wiser. Uh, I'm, I'm a better dad. And I'm, I'm a better husband, too. So, uh, yeah. Just just life in general is stressful. We share that in common. Um, My girl is a nurse and uh, and we've been together for five years now. So uh, she's a natural healer and natural empath and she's just very sweet. So, uh, yeah, I'm very blessed and very lucky, too. Um, Yeah, we go on family trips. We have a good time and. I'm a grandpa now, so <laughs> it's it's wild it's wild to think like people don't believe it um, when they when I tell them how much time I have on the job and they don't believe it when because uh, I go to I keep myself in shape. Oh, yeah, you know what I wanted to ask you: Do you have any uh, very obese officers <laughs> here? Uh, there's a couple. Uh, I would say out of out of the 89 that were authorized, we probably got about five or seven and we're working on uh, implementing the like a stipend for uh for fitness stipend yes, now i don't know a little that's motiv- a motivation a little motivation yeah. something and um you know you gotta start small on a lot of things because that's really more of a lifestyle issue yeah. as well um it's difficult to counteract so it, there's no telling what would work with that to you know bring those group of officers back into you know is it is it nutrition is it education is it money you know what is it that brings brings them back around a little bit um is it something so, is it something in their childhood you don't know how deeply rooted the issue is right yep yeah you don't and and uh so you don't know if it's a stipend uh and doing something quarterly like rowing or whatever would you know would get that person enthused and and, and doing it now i think for me personally you know modeling expected behavior is a big deal and uh so uh, we have a gym that has some glass on it here in the PD. So I make sure I'm in there and it's right by the locker. So they'll see me coming and going. And so I'll see the different shifts and I always go to briefings and stuff too. But um, so I'm in there, you know, walking or, you know, working out and, and doing stuff as well. I used to do uh, marathons and, and triathlons and stuff. So I have uh, always kind of been ordered, oriented toward physical fitness. And so I try to model the expected behavior and I say, Hey, I'm, you know, even your old chief is in here working out every day, you know, doing something. Yeah, no, that's really good. That's really good. I uh, I don't miss a day, even if I don't feel like it. I'll just I'll walk. I'll do something, but I don't miss a day um, unless work gets in the way. Then, mm-hmm. you know, I have some forced breaks, but that's why I, I try to just keep going every day because you get those forced breaks, you know? Yep. Yeah. You know, you know, you know, you're going to have to miss something at some point. Yes. So you just go on, you know, until until that happens. And that's for me, that's probably about, you know, uh, once, twice a week at the most, you know. So I'll get in a good five workouts at least and hope I'm aiming for seven, but I, I get at least five. And if I can. Yeah, because things come up and uh, when they do, then you don't have to necessarily get upset at the thing that's come up because you're like, all right, you know what? It's a forced break. Um, I can handle it. But I just, I love training. I love going in. I love like, I love training so much that I linked up with some potential candidates, recruits. And I was like, hey, I'll just work out. I'm like, I'm working out every day anyway. I'm like, I'll work out with you. I'll motivate you. I'll help you. So Mm -hmm. I worked out with a few of them. And and I told them, I'm like, I'm grateful to be here with you. I just want you to adopt this as a mindset. Like, you're not going to get ready you're just going to stay ready 
just stay ready because you never know what department's going to call you. You just, and that's that's a message for any of my younger listeners out there. Most of my audience is uh, older, like us in the forties mm-hmm. and fifties. But I do have some. I, I found out that I got some younger listeners out there, and um, I would just tell them to just stay ready. You know, yeah. like if you, any any time I see someone uni- in uniform. I'm like, you're out of your mind if defensive tactics in the academy is the only thing that you've ever trained in your entire life. Because when you need it, it's not going to be muscle memory. You have to be training in something. And I tell everyone that it doesn't have to be jujitsu. It doesn't have to be boxing or karate. It could be anything. But you have to be training in something. Yep. You have to be because that's the only way it'll be muscle memory. And oh, yeah. Then, and then you have to keep yourself fit to for for the stress levels that we endure it's the only way to keep yourself mentally fit oh yeah yeah and you know what i i you talked about the younger group coming through and this uh this latest generation z um i hate to admit they may be a little more balanced than we were <laughs> but yes. they're a little different that's for sure yes but for sure I, I think i think they may be a little more balanced i was uh one of the stories i had recently just a few weeks ago um i uh we have three people in the academy right now and uh, they're a good little group and and they're getting out in, in December. But uh, I took them around the city and showed them uh, wastewater treatment, power, you know, uh, power plant, tried to give them an idea that that we're part of a city team. And there's it's not just a police department. And so they kind of knew me. But uh, again, back when we were in the academy in the 90s, you know, if my if sergeant, lieutenant, God forbid, the chief came into the lunchroom where I'm at, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm eating, you know, I'm not, I'm not looking or anything like that. They had to find me. Well, this, uh, so I came into this packed lunchroom to actually just to have lunch. It's at the Academy. And uh, one of the recruits stood up and was like, Hey chief, we're over here. And I was like, man, <laughs> if I did that in the Academy, they'd have thrown me through a window, you know, they'd be like, what in the, what are you doing? You know, and, <laughs> and been roasted and been roasted for the rest of your career for it too. <laughs> yeah. But it, they're like, hey, we're over here. Come sit with us. You know, like, wow, that that's that's why I know. OK, it's a little bit of a different, but, you know, probably good. You know, they just they don't recognize a lot of that stuff that, that we that, you know, I I would never, never if, if said anything to the chief uh, unless they came over and sat down with me and started asking me questions. You know, they're definitely a little more balanced because they pack more. They're a little bit more into nutrition and mm-hmm. and their health and and their looks obviously because of uh social media <laughs> yep so they're yep. definitely more balanced than um our generation of a couple decades ago yep. um i i just want to honor your time and i want to one i want to say thank you so much for your years of service and the work that you continue to do i loved everything that you said um, I just have five final questions for you, which I ask all my guests. And um, well, this one's not part of the five. I just want to know if people want to reach out to you, uh, where's the best place? Usually uh, the best place is on our website. You can you can do a general email in. And of course, I'm on the website as well. So it's uh, which is, it's grand. The- it's a grand on police department. So, uh, you know, if you want to reach out to me personally, it's uh, K Denny and it's D-E-N-N-E-Y, almost like the restaurant. But Kay Denny at uh, gipolice.org. Okay. And uh, yeah, you can reach out to us and, you know, ask us any question. Um, we are recruiting all over the country and 
Um, I would say about 80% of our recruits are more local uh, in Nebraska, but uh, we've, we've just got um, somebody on from Washington, D.C. And uh, so we're, we're always looking around to bring in the, the best and brightest here at PD. All right. My final five for you. Thank you so much for coming on. What's your definition of a hero? Because the name of the show is the Hero Academy. <laughs> uh, the hero to me is um, somebody who uh, who likes people, wants to make a difference, and goes about that um, without trying to draw unnecessary attention to themselves. That's that's a hero. You know, the people that we interact with that aren't doing it because of you know looking at look at me. Um, it's the ones that that are truly humble and are trying to make a difference and enjoy people and, and enjoy making the world a better place than it was when they got there. I love it. When uh, you're starting to feel stressed out yourself because uh, you, you have a lot on your plate, you're running a department, you're starting to feel like you're reaching your breaking point. How do you save yourself? How do you show yourself love? What I'll normally do is, uh, I, I get to that point because you have a lot of plates spinning a lot of times and stuff. And so uh, what I'll normally do is uh, I'll, I'll actually take a vacation. Um, my wife is just terrific with me. Uh, my mom is from Bermuda. And so it's an island out there in the, in the Atlantic. And uh, I'm very fortunate that that's a place I can go and hang up the phone and, you know, not have to worry. And, and I can fish and I can hang out with uh, my family that's that's there and sometimes my wife will go. Sometimes it's just me. Sometimes it's me and some buddies from that that I know that yeah, okay. Some of them are from from work, but we're not going to talk work. We're, we're we're buddies, you know. And we can go. We do a lot of walking. We do a lot of fishing. Uh, I do some uh, some yard clearing and stuff like that. But truthfully, that's 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 where I go. I got to have a reset. And then you come back and you're like, okay, everything doesn't seem so so tough now, you know, so insurmountable, insurmountable. You have a moment to just decompress. I'm smiling so big because I just remembered our first conversation, you telling me that you were an Island boy and <laughs> now, and now you're in Nebraska of all places. <laughs> well, and it's funny too, cause it's grand Island, which they say is an Island. I'm still looking for the actual Island, but um, it's uh yeah, I, uh, I, I love my Bermuda side as well i've got status there and uh so that's one place that I, is a refuge for me i'm 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 absolutely blessed to to have that option in my you life you think you'll live there uh you think you'll sell the house and live in bermuda when when everything's all said and done i don't know about living there cuz you you stay there for a while you get rock fever you know cuz it's 26 miles long uh speed limit 20 miles an hour that kind of thing um so i would say that I can see myself staying down there for extended periods of time longer okay. than I do now. Okay. Uh, so maybe three or four months at a time. All right. And then the next thing is um, what's your next project after the PhD is done? What, what comes after that? Oh, that's an easy one um, for me personally um, is to uh, enroll in our uh, local community college here and hardwire Spanish. Uh, I really want to learn Spanish. My, my wife's Hispanic, uh, her family, you know, the most speak Spanish as well. And, uh, and, and the community here in Grand Island and the community that I came from in Irving, uh, very, very heavy Hispanic. I love culture, Texas Spanish for, for that, for that reason. I love oh, Texas. Yeah. The first time I went down to Dallas, I was actually shocked 
I mean, it made sense once I was there, but I was actually shocked how many Hispanic people there were. Mm -hmm. It made sense to me. I'm like, oh, yeah, Texas is a border town. <laughs> it made sense. But when I was there, I was like, wow, there's so many brown people. here." <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, we're we're going that way eventually where, you know, um, like my my kids are Hispanic, but they're they're half white boy as well. You know, yeah, and yeah. Uh, so so you know it there's i like the blending and the and all of that and so that's my next project is, is to really learn spanish and get that get that hardwired in that is a very very strong desire and dream for me as well and i will go the zoom route um there's a website called preply you should look into it you can get an instructor from basically any country around the world and they're as low as three to four dollars an hour. So you could get a half hour lesson or an hour, whatever you choose. Right. With the little dial. Uh, it's called Preply, P-R-E-P-L-Y. And uh, you get tutors. You get assigned the same tutor and you pay them directly through this website. And you schedule a time to meet with them once a week over Zoom, and you basically have a conversation like this. And and some of them are instructors. Some of them are like legitimate teachers, mm -hmm. and they're bilingual, and they can really, really teach you. And then others, you know, I guess some are better than others. They have a star rating. So I would highly recommend you look into that. I know you have a lot on your plate right now, so, <laughs> but that that's just another option other than going to community college. So That's cool. Yeah, yeah, look into that because um, there's a website for everything, right? Yep. Well, that's what is your uh, what's your power? What's your your strength or your best ability? I would say my best ability is uh, is the ability to recognize strengths in individuals and put them in the right positions, collaborate effectively. So put together teams. I think a lot of that falls back on the time that I was a sergeant. Um, but to identify people's passion and what their what their jam is, their strength, their working strength, and then to use that effectively in a team setting, and then to, to collaborate that team toward a vision, I, I would say that's probably my my biggest strength. That's an invaluable invaluable skill that is very marketable, by the way, just so that you know, mm -hmm. um, to corporations because. Uh, you know, if you decided to ever go that route, but that's, is, you have so many marketable skills. I'm i uh, I'm definitely a fan. And just for fun, my last question, if you had a comic super book power, you know, comic book superpower, what would it be and why? I love that question. I'm, I'm a fan of yours, by the way. Thank um, you. I would say I was all, this is offbeat, but I was always a fan of the flash. And so if I could, if, yeah. So if I could, if, if I could have a superpower, that would be it. Just, that's just cool to me, you know, is uh, what all the flash could do. It could go almost light speed and, and, uh, vibrate through walls. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that was, that to me was, uh, would be my superpower. That's awesome. That's awesome. I always tell people, I want all the powers of the mind, telekinesis, mm -hmm. pyrokinesis, uh, the ability to levitate myself, I, that would be part of telekinesis, I guess. Yeah. Um, and the ability to uh, put, you know, tap other people's minds and like inception yeah, for the good, of course. Mm -hmm. That would <laughs> but, be a pretty good power, too. 
Yeah, Professor Professor Xavier. Um, you know, you walk past someone who's just like a raging uh, lunatic on the street, and they're emotionally disturbed, and you could just like tap their minds, say, "Calm down, brother. Calm down. Calm down, brother." And then it just works. Mm-hmm. That would be an amazing, amazing ability. But I want all the powers of the mind. Yeah, that would be okay. So that would be a really good one too. I agree with you on that. That would be great. But being able to move really fast is a really cool. Like I have a flash uh, poster. I watched the movie, which uh, the critics didn't give it the best, but I loved it. Did you watch it? No, is that the one where he goes back and meets himself as a younger? Yeah, okay, yeah, no, yeah. I, I don't I mean, want to give anything away because someday yeah. you will watch it. I'm going to watch it soon. And it actually is very, very good. It's on HBO now, HBO Max. Yeah, I'm going to check it out. I, I want to see that one. Chief, thank you so much for your time and thank you for your career and all the work that you continue to do. I really and truly appreciate you. Thank you so much and stay safe, stay healthy. Well, thank you, Super Dave. I appreciate the opportunity to talk on your show and uh, to get to meet you and you stay safe and keep doing keep doing the good work that you're doing. Thank you, brother. All right. All right, family. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Everyone I interview, I've chosen for you guys because of this story. And I hope that you get some value every single time. If you did get value or just just simply enjoyed the episode, please share the episode with someone that you know. If you know of a guest, a frontline hero that has an amazing story, something uplifting or a positive message, Hit me up in the contact form of www.davidleith.com or DM me at Instagram at davidleith, the number one. Subscribe to the show because I have some really phenomenal guests coming up in the next few weeks that you definitely don't want to miss. All right, one.